You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Yes, Lord God, as we come before you this morning, in the mighty name of Jesus, by his grace, by his mercy, Lord God, as we cry to you, Lord God, we know that you will answer us, that you speak to us, that you lead us, that you, that you guide us, Lord. So Lord, I pray that even as we go through your word right now, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word, Lord God, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open our hearts to receive the message that you have for us this morning, Lord God, and that we would grow through it, Lord God, that we would respond with an excitement to live by it, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Awesome. You may have a seat. Thank you, worship team. It's nice to chill out the worship sometimes and just, you know, strip everything away and just come before the Lord. Uh, it's, it's great. So thank you, team. Um, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good? Um, As per usual, we are going to be continuing through our sermon series through 1 Corinthians, which we've titled United in Christ. And uh, uh, last week, some of you might remember during Pastor Brad's message, we were reminded and encouraged uh, by the inspired words of the Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Corinthians uh, to live as we were called, to live as we are called, uh, which means to honor and seek and, and remain with God in whatever circumstance or, or condition or social status we're currently in. For this is God's assignment for us, to shine his light and proclaim his gospel wherever and however he's placed us in the world. And we're reminded that the reason that we can even do this, and, and even the worst of social or economic scenarios, if necessary, is, is because we know, we know that our eternal and glorious status in, in the kingdom of God is already secured, and it's already paid for by the cross of Jesus Christ. So, in other words, our societal condition has no effect on our spiritual condition right? Our, our true identity and joy and freedom is no longer found in worldly status or, or things, but has already been freely given to us. And so to find contentment in Jesus, then, is to simultaneously be freed from being measured by the never-ending societal pressures and worldly expectations that are thrown at us on a daily basis, Uh, As followers of Christ, that's no longer our concern, right? Amen to that. So instead, as Christians, we've been saved and enabled to live for the Lord wherever we are and whatever condition we're in, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, young or old, man or woman, married or unmarried, as we'll continue to discover and hopefully be encouraged by today. So if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be picking up at verse 25 and going to all the way to, to verse 40. So 1 Corinthians 7, 25 to 40. It should be behind me as well. Thanks to our awesome PowerPoint team. Uh, 1 Corinthians seven twenty-five to 40. This is the word of the Lord. 
It says, now concerning the betrothed, or unmarried as some translations write, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. is the word of the Lord. There's a lot there, hey? Um, let's do this. A, a couple of years ago, I, I received a phone call from a young lady who, who attended our church, and she was also a student at the university here. And the reason for her call is that she was conflicted as to whether she should continue in her current field of study or if she should change to a different program, which she felt uh, she was more passionate about. And, and the primary reason for the conflict that she was feeling in her heart and in her mind was that she wasn't sure what God's will was for her in this decision. And, and she wanted to follow his lead, which is, which is good, right? She wanted to follow God's will in that decision. So, of course, this is one of those many situations in life where we can't just open up the Bible and, and find specific direction as to what to do, right? There, there's no verse that says, thou must choose this university program over this one, right? So, so of course, this was a situation which required uh, wisdom and, and prayer and, and talking through, right? And, and in the end, though, the counsel I gave her was, was to reassure her that as, as long as her desire was to serve and honor God in her studies and in her future career, whatever that might be, then either choice she determined to make in the end would be fine. God's going to work through that if her desire is to honor and serve Him in it. 
And to an extent, this is basically what Paul, the Apostle Paul, seems to be saying to all the single men and women at the church in Corinth in this part of the letter. He he writes that in his own authoritative wisdom and and spirit-led opinion, since there was no specific scripture or, or command from God to draw from here, he writes, in his own opinion again, that, that for a believer to remain single is good. But that to get married to another believer is also okay too. And so both opinions, he writes, are fine and respectable. That is, as long as each person is contented and devoted to the Lord in whatever path they take. Because ultimately, this is Paul's number one concern here. If we read between the lines, right? Not, not whether one is married or single, but whether they're honoring and following after Jesus. But with that being said, for Paul to even mention singleness here as an option, especially for women or widows, would have been revolutionary and fully countercultural for them. In, in fact, in order to, to, to better understand what, what Paul's teaching here, it's important that we look into the context of marriage and, and singleness within the Greco-Roman culture at the time where this church in Corinth is situated. Because Paul seems to be dealing with specific issues or questions concerning the conflict between what their society expected of them and what their newfound faith in Jesus is calling them to do. And, and, and to be clear, what their society expected of them was that they should be married. Unless they were a slave or a criminal, there wasn't really a choice. Every Roman citizen's customary duty to the empire was to get married, or if necessary, remarried, because divorce was actually really common, and, and then to have at least three children. This was an expectation. In, in fact, about 50 years before this letter was written, uh, according to Wikipedia, um, all men between 25 and 60 years of age and all women between 20 and 50 were to marry and have children or pay extra tax in proportion to their wealth. There was, there was a punishment if you were not married and if you did not have children. To further encourage this, there was also tax levies and whatnot for married couples who had children. The more children you had, the, more, the less taxes you would have to pay. So socially, legally, and monetarily speaking, right, getting married and having kids was obviously the better option for them to make back then, and it wasn't really an option. Uh, it's possible, though, that this legal requirement may have been removed by the time of Paul writing this letter, but the expectation of society was still the same. This, this is one of the reasons why the practice of parents, mostly fathers, arranging marriages was still in full force. Marriage wasn't really a choice made out of love. It was a duty, okay? So, which means that in those days, relationships usually didn't work like they, they might nowadays where two people might meet somewhere like at Bible college or prayer group or on Christian mingle and then, you know, date for a while and then decide to get engaged for the purpose of getting married, right? In, in fact, the reason this passage is often so confusing for us today when we read through it uh, 
is, is we tend to read this passage, like we do a, a lot of scripture, from, from our current understanding, from our current context, right? And, and, and we, we read it in, in how we understand what being engaged means and what being betrothed means. So for us, it would seem, so for us, it would seem silly and unusual for someone to tell an engaged or betrothed couple that they shouldn't tie the knot in, in favor of just staying betrothed for the rest of their lives, Paul's like, if, if, you, if you're betrothed and you can remain that way, yes, do it. That's what he says. That's like, we read that and we're like, what? That doesn't make any sense because that's weird to us because the whole point of getting engaged these days is for the purpose of getting married. Like if someone's like, we're engaged, that means you're going to get married. We, the first thing we ask when someone's like, we're engaged, you say, when's the date, right? That, that's the whole point of getting engaged is to get married. So rather, it's, it's quite possible and more likely that one of the, the questions the unmarried Corinthian believers were wrestling with now that they were following Jesus was whether or not they can or should still marry those they were arranged to be betrothed to. This is the struggle that they're having. Should we still follow through with this? And either way, Paul reassures them by saying that, okay, it's perfectly fine to be married already, and if so, you should stay that way, if you can. And then he says, and neither is it a sin to get married to another believer. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to get into it. But then he says, it's preferable or better if they remain as they are, that is, single. So he sums this up in verse 38. He says, 1 Corinthians 7, 38. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And then right after that, he says to widows, you'll be happier if you remain as you are. So in what some might see as a surprising twist... Paul is empowering and normalizing the state of singleness within the body of Christ. And he even does it in a way that would have disturbed the expectations and societal pressures of the world in which they lived. So, which is similar to us today because we also tend to idolize marriage, especially in our own Christian cultures, right? And, and even in our own hearts, in such a way that, that we tend to miss out and, and fail to acknowledge this incredible truth. That, that whether you're a single adult who's chosen the life of celibacy, or whether it's simply the life that's been given to you for either a period of time or, or permanently for your whole life, Paul writes here that you've been called and well-positioned for the Lord. That is, being a, a widow or single Christian is more than just acceptable to God. It's good, if not better than the state of marriage. Of course, the Apostle Paul is speaking from experience as one who is single himself and is also emulating Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who was never married either, despite what those fictional Dan Brown novels might suggest, right? And on that note, pastor and author Matt Smethurst writes, if singleness is deficient, then so is Jesus Christ. 
If singleness is deficient, then so is Jesus Christ. Was Jesus Christ deficient? No. He was perfect in every way. Perfectly righteous in every way. But of course, the reason that he writes it like that is because we do often have this idea, or maybe it's a subconscious idea, or often this unintentional attitude towards singleness as if it is this state of incompleteness. And singles are often treated like this sometimes. Oh, when are you going to get married? Right? So we ask them. Singles are treated like this, and I'm sure that even singles will admit to feeling like that on occasion as well. But Paul's like, no, it should be the opposite. For for in the same way that that, that marriage is meant to reflect and proclaim the unifying relationship of Jesus and the church, singleness is meant to reflect and proclaim the sufficiency and completeness of Christ. Single Christians are meant to be powerful and living examples to us and to the world of verses like Psalm 23.1, which declares, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And of Paul's proclamation in Philippians 4.11 that says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So to to be a single Christian is to declare the truth to the world and to inspire other believers in your faith that Jesus is enough for me. His grace is sufficient for me. His love is what fulfills me. His truth sustains me. Because of the cross, Jesus is all I ever need. And again, this, this, is, this is really Paul's primary reasoning for singles to, to remain as they are, if they can, in, in order to secure their undivided attention and faith in the Lord. So the call for singles here then is to continually learn to be content and solely devoted to Jesus Christ. And I I understand that this this might be especially challenging for singles during times of feeling alone or, or, or when they're longing for marriage, which is okay to do as long as it doesn't become idolatry, right? So, in fact, this was the struggle of the, the prolific hymn writer and notable author Margaret Clarkson, who once wrote in an article that, that she had a hard time accepting her singleness until later in life when, when she came to understand that it was God's choice for her and, and that it was only him alone who, cu- who could and does meet the loneliness of her life. She would go on to write that to know God to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he is sovereign and that my life is in his care. This is the unshakable foundation on which I stay my soul. Such knowledge has deep significance for the single Christian. Such knowledge has deep significance for the single Christian. And in in the same vein, uh, theologian Sam Albury writes, the key to contentment as a single person isn't being content in singleness. It's being content in Christ as a single person. So we see the difference there, right? It's not just like, oh, accept your singleness. No, be content in Christ, and you will be content in every other area of your life, including as a single person. But of course, this message isn't, isn't just for single people, right? In fact, married people need to humbly and learn from our single brothers and sisters in this as well, that, that only Jesus can complete us. 
only Jesus is sufficient for us. Only Jesus can supply all our needs according to his grace. A spouse can't do that, right? And therefore, our relationship with Jesus should come first and foremost. To that end, Joseph Hellerman writes, an interesting twist on, on, on interpreting this passage. He writes, Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 7 was not to ask how singleness fits into God's kingdom plan. Paul was addressing the issue of how marriage fits into his kingdom plan. Single people are already with the program. They are already concerned about the things of the Lord. Married people are the ones who need help sorting out their priorities. So, so this was Paul's point, right? Married people are often tied up and, and distracted with marriage things and the anxieties that go with that kind of relationship, how to provide and serve one another and, and get along with one another and work together, and in many cases how to provide for their kids and, and, and deal with extended families and, and on and on and on and all the stresses and distractions that go with those things, right? Um, but in contrast to that, and... and First of all, Paul's not saying marriage is bad. We already talked about marriage a couple weeks ago and, and, and how it's good and, and, and how it proclaims the gospel and all those things, right? So that's not what he means here. But he's saying it does come with worldly distractions and troubles, right? But in contrast to that, single people, at least those without kids, right, have a glorious opportunity here in that they're able to focus solely on the re- one relationship that truly matters in the end, the relationship with Jesus Christ. So I should note here that, that this passage is often misinterpreted in a way that implies singles without kids don't have anxieties in life or that they have more time on their hands to serve in, in church compared to parents or married people. How many people have heard that before? Yeah, if, oh yeah, one of our singles. This is a dumb idea. This is not what this passage means, okay? It's not what Paul means here at all. I know some singles who, who are bi- pretty busy just trying to pay their own bills because they're paying their own bills, right? So while, yes, singles, we need, to, we need to understand, singles have been uniquely positioned to serve the Lord and to be devoted to Him, and they should be co- committed to living as they're called and to grow in that. But ultimately, either way, married or single, we're all called and positioned to serve one another within the church according to the grace he's given us. And, and of course, if you do have more time or flexibility to serve the Lord and others, that's great. Then do it. But let's not assume here that singles always do have more time on their hands because that's not what this passage means. So again, what Paul's really talking about here is that unmarried men and, wo- and women aren't divided in their heart, in their, in their loyalty or devotion, right? They're, they're not as tempted to be distracted by the worldly troubles or social pressures which marriages seem to cause and add on to so that instead they can rest in the sufficiency of Christ and live in devotion to Him. This is Paul's point and desire for singles, to live for Jesus alone. And this is incredibly powerful. It, it's a high and glorious calling, Where God's saying to to them, I desire you solely for myself. That I might do good works and bear much fruit through you. And truly, to live this way should should inspire us. We, We should see the singles in our church family and in our community and be inspired. 
I'm inspired by them. It makes me also think of one of my favorite theologians, John Stott. And you, you might not have heard of him, but I've, I, I use him all the time in my research and in my study, and I've quoted him before, so technically you have. And, and he was single his whole life. He was single his whole life, and in being so, he was able to devote his time to the study of Scripture and, and, and was therefore positioned by God to make a huge impact on how we understand the Word and the cross of Christ. Such a powerful life. Or, or, or it makes me think of people like C.S. Lewis. We know C.S. Lewis, right? Narnia, right? He lived most of his adult life as a single man. He was married for a couple years, and then his wife died. He lived most of his adult life as a single man, and, and this allowed him to think deeply about his faith and inspire others with books like Mere Christianity and the like. And so if, if you're single, if you're single, you've been well positioned for the Lord to make an impact for the kingdom of God. And so, so I encourage you, like Paul does here, to live your life in devotion to him that he might do good works through you. And if you know singles and you're not single, make sure you let them know that. And you encourage them in that. This is, this is the glorious call for singles. And beyond that, Paul also writes then that singles remind us of and reflect the age to come. They remind us of and reflect the age to come. 1 Corinthians 7, 29 to 31. He says, he says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So one day, we know as, as believers, one day we know the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, will return in glorious victory. And when he does, all the things of the world will pass away, including marriage. Which means that, that single Christians become for us a constant reminder of this future reality as they live just as we all eventually will in eternity, single with Jesus. So Paul writes that every believer should take note here. That all should invest and prioritize this kingdom reality over and above any earthly thing or ambition or institution or feeling, right? He, he's saying here, we need to live with the hope and expectation of Jesus coming again. That's the priority. As N.T. Wright notes, the, the present world will one day give way to the world to be, the world in which Jesus will have completed his kingly work of defeating all hostile powers, including ultimately death itself. When that moment arrives, it won't matter that you followed or didn't follow some social order or pattern in the way that your family and friends all assumed you would. What will matter is that you are faithful to the Lord in whatever strange circumstances you found yourself. What will matter is that you are faithful to the Lord. The present form of this world is passing away, and singles are already positioned for this glorious moment. They show us daily and powerfully 
what it means to live in expectation of that reality, which is incredible. And finally, I want to point out that while it's not explicitly stated here in this passage, we need to recognize that it is written within the context of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians, which constantly calls for unity and love within the body of Christ. So Paul certainly has that in mind. So with that in mind, we, we, we can also draw out from this passage the message that single Christians also point us to the necessity of the church functioning as a family. We need to function as a family. So the call to lay down your life and follow Jesus is always one of radical sacrifice, right? It's always one of radical sacrifice. And one of the sacrifices that single Christians make, whether young or old, is to live a life of solitude for the glory of Christ. But yet, at the same time, no Christian is meant to live the life of faith alone. We all need relationship and family. And God has designed the church to fill that role. In fact, I get really upset and saddened as a pastor, you know, whenever I hear a single person say that they don't feel like they belong in church or, or that they're being excluded in some way. Because no one in, in the family of God should feel that way. John 1, 12 to 13 says this, but to all who did receive him, they're talking about believing in Jesus, right? But, but to all who did receive Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This verse tells us a lot, but two things specifically that pertain to our message this morning. First, this, or these two verses, the, these verses tell us that the kingdom of God now grows and multiplies through those that are born again in Christ. Which means that the call for God's people to be fruitful and multiply now takes on a whole different connotation on this side of the cross. What I mean is, is that for us being fruitful and multiplying the kingdom is no longer done through getting married and having lots of kids, like it was in the Old Testament. We multiply no longer through bloodlines nor the will of man. It's now done by living for Jesus, that's being fruitful, and it's now done by seeing people saved through the preaching of the gospel, that's multiplication. So, when we think of it like that, it's fair to assume that this might be part of the reason why Paul on this passage doesn't feel the need to elevate marriage and having kids over being single. He's like, they're both good. Both can be, you can be fruitful and multiply in both states, right? Because it's about preaching the gospel. It's about seeing people saved. That's what expanding the kingdom is. And this leads us to the second point, which is that whoever is saved through Christ also becomes adopted into the family of God. 
We all become children of God. In other words, the family of God is more than just about nuclear families now, right? It, it includes everyone who's been born again, and therefore the local church should reflect that. We are the family of God. This, this is especially significant, I think, when, when it comes to singles. In, in fact, the church is now their primary source for family. The church is where they get friendship and encouragement and discipleship. And as we've been reminded this morning, they're an integral part of the body of Christ and its mission in this world. So we need to be in relationship with them as much as they need to be in relationship with us. Does that make sense? As, as Ryan Griffith writes, the local church should be a place of refuge, encouragement, fulfillment, and gospel fellowship for the unmarried. Here, single men and women can build lasting bonds of intimate friendship and partner with families in the joyful calling to make disciples of all nations. Married members should not presume that the unmarried are irresponsible, nor should single members assume that they have little to offer a church filled with families. The unmarried are not disqualified for or excused from service in any ministry in the church by their singleness and ought to utilize their skills and experiences as any other member of Christ's body. And so, for married couples, I, I think this should be a reminder to us to not only hang out with married couples, as we're prone to do, but to ensure that we're including singles in, in, in our, our leadership and Bible studies and social events and in our conversations on Sunday morning, right? Again, they have a lot to offer and teach us as well. For singles, though, this should be a reminder for you to also make an effort yourselves to get involved with the church, right? To serve within the church as you've been called to do, and just as importantly, to also pursue friendships and spiritual relationships with others in the church so that you're not feeling isolated in your faith. Ultimately, the church should feel and act like a united family where both married couples and singles feel welcomed, included, valued, loved, encouraged, discipled, and given opportunity to serve the Lord. Because in the end, that's the ultimate goal. The glory of God in all areas of life. Whether we're male or female, young or old, married or single, we all proclaim with one voice, as, as Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We live for Christ. Married or single, we live by faith in Jesus alone who died on the cross for us so that we could. 